with Memorial Day being this weekend, I uh, was thinking this week about some of the historical stories that are part of our history as a nation. They are stories that are told that, as we tell them, are repeated in order to lay the foundation of the values of our society and the values of our nation. That exists in all cultures. It exists in all countries. There are those stories, those accounts that are told over and over again that remind us of the values that we share. I was reading this week about the Romans and about the story that underpinned the founding of the city of Rome. It's the story of Romulus and Remus. And no, they're not two planets in the Star Trek, you know, whatever. Romulus Romulus and Remus were twin brothers. And according to the myth of the Romans, they were fathered by the god Mars, and their mother was human. As a result of their birth and a result of the royal standing of their mother, the king that existed in that area and ruled over that area in which they lived, an Etruscan king, he was threatened by them, and so he sought to kill them. And his mother, kind of like Moses, um, abandoned him and floated him down the river in order that he might be, in order that the twins might survive. Well, if you know the story, the story goes on to say that they were found by a a female wolf, and that she nursed them for a little while, and then later they were found by shepherds and. The shepherd and his wife would raise Romulus and Remus. They were, they were what we would call today delinquents. You know, they were rough kind of guys. They, they were involved and finally decided that it was their dream to found a city. And Romulus and Remus, as twin brothers, they fought against each other as to where the city should be founded. And finally, they decided to found, found two cities on two different locations. But one day, Romulus, in a bit of anger, came over to, or Remus, in a bit of anger, came over to Romulus's area. And Romulus, in order to protect his area, killed his brother. And that was the founding story of Rome. If you were raised in Rome and you were involved in any kind of education, You heard the story of Romulus and Remus. And you were reminded of the values of Romulus and Remus. Values of things like violence and and, um, barbarianism in in the sense of, of strength. And strength was found in conquering others and destroying others. You, you, in that story, you, ter- you learned of the importance of protecting the city of Rome against anything, and that was above anything in your life, even your brother, and you would kill your brother in order to protect Rome. They decided that they hated kings, and that's why they had a republic until the Caesars showed up. And so they hated the idea of kings because kings were there, and they were a divine right as Rome to conquer the world because those that founded the city of Rome, they were birthed by a god. 
And all of that became the foundation of what Rome was about. In the United States, we have our stories much more historical. We talk about Lexington and Concord. We talk about Bunker Hill and how men, average men, average farmers and landowners and others took a stand against the barbarianism of England and how England was being tyrannical and was trying to force them to do things and to support in ways that they were unwilling to. And so these men, these minute men, in a minute's notice, would gather their guns and run out to protect liberty and freedom. That builds the foundation of the values of our nation. And we talk about a defense of liberty. We talk about the responsibility of the individual to protect that liberty. And on a Memorial Day weekend, we remember those who gave the ultimate sacrifice to protect our freedom and to protect our liberty. We're a part of a nation, this nation. But God's word says that we have a dual citizenship. That we're a part of, yes, the United States, and we have a responsibility to be good citizens of that country. But God's word also proclaims that we are also citizens of heaven. And that we are to do everything in our lives in a way that represents that citizenship in a proper way. And there is a story, a historical story that underpins everything that we do as believers. There is a story and an account of what happened, and particularly we understand, in the life of Christ. And it is his life story from beginning to end. Now we understand beginning begins in eternity past and end goes on for eternity future. But it is the story of our founder that is to dictate and control the way we live as good citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to look at just three verses this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. I guess that's four verses. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And as Paul comes and is working his way through the book of Philippians, he makes a change at this point. Verse 27 is a change. It is a break in the book of Philippians, in the letter. I wish when those that had come up with chapters and verses, rather than breaking it at chapter 2, verse 1, which begins, you know, if there is any, Actually, the new chapter in the book of Philippians begins in chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul makes this change. Up until this point, he has been letting them know what was happening in his 
Paul's life. And he talked about, I want you to know what's been going on in verse 12. And so he tells them about his imprisonment. He tells them about what is about to take place. And he expects that he will be delivered and he will see them again. And he talks about his own life and what God has been doing as a missionary reporting back to his supporting church. But suddenly when you come to chapter 1, verse 27, the whole focus changes. And Paul says, now I want to talk about things concerning you. The church at Philippi. And he begins to focus upon them. And from this point, through the rest of the book, Paul is extending his exhortation to that church that is at Philippi. And when you begin reading there in Philippians chapter 1, and you begin reading in verse 27, and I happen to have the English Standard Version, it begins this, Only let your manner of life be worthy. And Paul begins this whole new section with that phrase. What he will declare in what follows, all the way up until chapter 3, verse 1, will he begin to deal with those who are in opposition to the church at Philippi. As he will declare this, in all circumstances, we are united, meaning the church of Jesus Christ, in our goal of reflecting the story of Jesus. Now, Paul uses the phrase gospel. The good news. And I use the word story instead of good news because our, our gospel, because I think sometimes when we hear gospel, we think of just the four spiritual laws or just the, you know, um, good news, bad news that comes out from, from Larry Moyer. Or we think just about you need to, you need to have faith in Jesus Christ and accept what he did on the cross as your payment for sin. And we define the gospel in that very narrow kind of way. But when Paul uses this phrase, the euangelion, to preach the gospel, he's talking about the entire story of Jesus. And it is what we know and understand about who Jesus is and what he did. It is that story, that reality, that historical account that is to dominate how we live our lives. How we make the decisions of our lives. How we set the directions of our lives. What is the character of our lives. All of that is found here, Paul says, in understanding the gospel, the story of Christ. Now as you begin, it begins this way. As citizens of heaven, We are to reflect the story of the gospel. And we'll see why we talk about being citizens of heaven. But Paul says, first of all, there is a singular goal that directs our lives. And the ESV or, or the New American Standard or the NIV, whatever you have, kind of fails to capture the word that Paul uses here. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, the ESV begins, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul literally begins with the word one. Manos, singular. And Paul will say, this is the singular, the one. Several weeks ago, we looked at, remember Curly from, um, um, what's the movie? I can't think of it. Um, 
What is it? City Slickers. And in there, he talks about the secret of life is this. And what Paul was saying in his own life there in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 is, the purpose of my life is the progress of the gospel. Now he will say that same thing when he comes to the Philippians and says this. Manos, singular, is the purpose of my, gospel, of my life. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to live in a way that continually reflects that story in my life. The singular goal of my life. Paul says to the Philippians, when you think about your life, think about the story of Jesus and ask the question, how much does my life conform to the way he lived his? How much does my life conform to what I know about him? Paul challenges us. One thing above all else, it dominates the whole rest of the book. This one thing, live out the story of Jesus in everything that you do. Now as he develops that, he goes a little bit farther. He tells us that there is a dominant realm to which we are loyal. My grandchildren which, by the way, that's where Cindy is. She's over in, in London for the next week or so. So I'm living on my own. If my shirt looks a little stained this morning, that's why, um, you know, pants aren't quite, you know, whatever. But my grandchildren have dual citizenship. They are both citizens of Great Britain and citizens of the United States. They have dual passports. Now, when they turn, I think it's 18, they have to choose. And they have to make a choice between each one. I have a feeling it'll be Great Britain. You know, when I hear, listen to them on the phone, I hear, hello, Nana. Hello, Papa. You know, with that wonderful you know, a three-year-old with a British accent. They sound so intelligent. <laughs> Just amazing. But when they turn 18, one of them will become dominant. What Paul says here, and sometimes the translations don't quite show it because the word doesn't, it's kind of hard to put into English. But when Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, what he literally says is this, let your citizenship, live out your citizenship in a way that reflects the gospel of Christ. Now the question becomes, citizens of what? Does it mean that as citizens of the United States, for the the Philippians, as citizens of the Roman Empire, that they are to live as Romans in such a way that they represent Christ? It could mean that. But what it probably means is this. You and I have a dominant citizenship, and it is not to this country. Yes, we are to be good citizens, but our ultimate citizenship, our ultimate home, Our ultimate realm is not here. It is God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is to be primary over everything we do. Now that was important to the Philippians. Remember, that city took pride in the fact that they, everyone who was a member 
or a, a citizen of the city of Philippi was automatically a citizen of Rome. It was a great honor, and they took pride in that. Paul says to them, look, you have a greater citizenship. And it is to that citizenship that we owe our first allegiance. As we go through the book, Paul will say it this way in Philippians chapter 3, but our citizenship is where? In heaven. And we are representatives. We are God's ambassadors in this realm. As we understand that ultimately we are members of God's kingdom. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And one of the things that the Philippians were going to be persecuted for was when they stood up and said, Lord. They were not saying Caesar is Lord. They were saying Christ is Lord. And for that they would be persecuted. For that they would find difficulty. For that there would be struggle. But for the Philippians and for Paul, what Paul understood was, my first allegiance is to God's kingdom. And if ever they are in conflict, that allegiance and this allegiance, Paul says, I choose first my allegiance to the kingdom of God. As a good citizen of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the story of Christ. And there is an overarching story that is to shape every aspect of our lives. Now, what Paul will do, again, remember, this new chapter begins there in chapter 1, verse 27. And all that follows, Paul is building this argument. And so Paul is going to tell us the story the gospel of Jesus. He does it in Philippians chapter 2, and he does it by most likely repeating a hymn that was sung among the early church. What is this story that is to shape our lives? What is this story that is to dominate everything that we do? What is this story that is supposed to be first in our lives? This is the story. Historically accurate. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at, that name, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. 
the glory of the Father. Now that doesn't strike us like it struck the Philippians. For the Philippians, they heard Jesus Christ is Lord and it transformed their lives. For Caesar was not Lord of their lives. Jesus was. How does that transform your life? How does that story, and there are other places where Paul tells the story of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he, he talks about um, Christ died for our sins and was buried and resurrected for our sins. And, and he talks about that aspect of the gospel. And there are other passages that speak about it. You know, Titus chapter 3 and others, where this gospel story, the story of Jesus, is laid out. But the challenge Paul has for us is how does it change your life? What difference does it make? When you read that the Lord of our lives was the God of heaven, the very God that spoke existence into being, spoke creation into being, that very God is the one who is Lord of our lives. That very God set aside what I believe is the independent use of his deity, his abilities, not his deity itself. He was always God and always man in his earthly existence, but he didn't use his own deity to do the miracles. He depended on the Father. He depended upon the Father's revelation through the Spirit to know the things that he knew. He laid aside all of the glories of heaven in order to come and give his life for you and me. He was willing to be obedient, no matter what the cost, even dying on the cross. And God honored him above everyone else. What does that mean? What does that mean tomorrow, or not tomorrow, but Tuesday, when when you head back to school? How does it change how you interact with your friends? What does that mean when you go to work on Tuesday? Or if you don't have Memorial Day off tomorrow? What does it mean? How does it change your life? How do you live differently because of that story? That's Paul's challenge. It should dominate everything we do. How does it change you as a parent to know that God of heaven was willing to take on the form of a servant to show his love? What does that say? That's Paul's challenge. He wants us to think through what are those implications in my life? How does my life change because of the story of what Jesus accomplished. That one attitude, Paul says, ought to unite us as a body of Christ. 
Paul wrote to a local church. He was writing to the church at Philippi, and he was saying, as he would if he were standing here before Grace Community, to say, that ought to create a unity within you as a local church. And that, I'm looking at the back, you're looking at the front, but that ought to change our attitude, our unity, as a universal body of Christ. So Paul goes on and says that unity is central to our ability to reflect the story of the gospel. And he does that as he begins to develop his argumentation there in verse 27. He talks about only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you, and then he goes on, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel, (coughs) for the faith of the gospel. He says there ought to be a unity in the body. He does that by the very structure of the sentence. The ESV does a great job, the English Standard Version. Some of the others, not quite so, to catch the structure in, in the original language. What Paul does is he structures the sentence. He says, I want to hear concerning you that you stand. But here comes the central theme. This is called the chiastic construction. In one spirit, and literally in one soul. Paul says it's that unity which is the central theme of this particular sentence. That you contend together for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, unity is essential. Standing together is essential. And yes, sometimes unity is hard. Why? Because the hardest thing about churches is they're made up of people. And we all struggle. At times we all want our way. In times we all want the glory. In times we all want to be selfish. In times we all want to, and we struggle with that self-centeredness as a part of us. But Paul says, you know what? You've got to put that aside because there is a unity that proclaims to the world that Christ is in our midst. He says that, that our unity ought to be, shared, ought to be built upon a shared purpose. Now, in the, the scriptures, a couple ways that people translate this. It says that we should stand firm in one spirit. I have a question. How many of you have the word spirit with a small letter S? Raise your hand in your, in your translation. Okay, anybody have it with a capital S in your translation? Okay. There's two ways you might translate this. Some say it's the spirit meaning God's presence within us. I think because one spirit, and literally in the Greek it says one soul or as one person is the next phrase, I think it's better to take it with a small spirit. It's talking about that internal drive, that internal purpose. We ought to have one primary purpose in our lives, and that is to demonstrate Christ. Not to get the glory, not to get you know my program, my purpose, my whatever done first. It's to give God the glory. To demonstrate Christ. One spirit, one attitude. 
Unity is to be built on a shared faith where he goes on to say as one soul contending for the faith of the gospel. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the idea is together, the word faith there can mean a couple of things. It can mean my trust in Christ, meaning the faith that I have in Jesus. That's one way to understand faith. That's not the way the word is used there. The other way to use faith is to talk about the faith with an article, meaning the content of what we believe in. The things we teach, and what we teach is the gospel of Jesus. We are united in that declaration, in that truth. What draws us together is not our denominations, is not the way we worship, is not whether or not we, you know, believe in this or that, other than the truth of the gospel, the central reality of Christ. That is the truth that binds us. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There, Spirit is capital S. In in Philippians, it's small. But then he goes on to say, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, what's the next one? One faith. One basic body of truth that we build our lives upon. Now, there are going to be differences, but when it comes down to it, we as believers are built upon some basic foundations. That, that, that Jesus is God. That God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. That Jesus, when we accept him as our Savior, forgives us of all our sins and eternity is ours. That there is an eternity that exists for all believers in Jesus Christ. That those that accept Christ will live eternity in God's presence in heaven. Those that reject Christ will live apart from God in hell. We believe that Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. Now, there are differences in that. Some believe Jesus is going to come before the tribulation. Some believe Jesus is going to come after the tribulation. Some people believe he's going to come before the millennium. Some people believe he's going to come after the millennium. Some people believe he's going to, you know, and on and on it goes. And we get these little differences that, yes, we want to discuss. And I think there is a truth that is there. And it's great to discuss back and forth. But there is a central, and I've called it before, what I would call the deadly doctrines. And what I mean by them is the ones I will die for. I really need to apologize to the worship team for putting that video right before they had to come up and sing again. Um, But there was a line in that video that just struck me. I taught my little girl that there were things worth fighting for and worth dying. Paul is basically saying to the Philippians, when it comes to our faith, the faith, there are things worth dying for. Now I thank God that we have men and women 
that gave their lives so that in this country I don't have to make that choice. But around the world there are people today who are having to choose life or truth. Paul says, I will stand united for the truth. And then finally you go on to say that our unity is necessary for us to preserve against opposition. We live in a very unique time as believers. It is a unique historical time when we live in churches that are not being persecuted. When you look at the history of the Christian church and believers, most of our history in most of the world is the story of people who were persecuted because of their faith. What Paul says is, it is our unity, our standing together that provides for us the strength necessary to persevere. Paul ends this whole account, this this first sentence. By the way, I love Paul. When I was when I used to write in college and in graduate school and stuff, I always used to write these real long sentences. And the professors would go, you know, too long a sentence, you need to break it up. And then I'd always go to the gospel and say, listen, Paul had incredibly long sentences. And if it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me, right? Verse 27 through verse 30 is one long sentence. I love Paul. But as he comes to the end of that sentence, he wants us to understand this. Reflecting the story of Jesus will result in opposition from those who reject his message. And as he builds this, he just says a few things. He says, first of all, opposition should not startle us. It shouldn't catch us by surprise. Um, When he goes on to say there, uh, beginning in verse 28, and, and we are not frightened in anything by your opponents. And the word frightened there is a very unique word. It's not used very often. It talks about a war horse that is startled in the midst of a battle. When because of the, the sound or the violence or the motion, that, that war horse is suddenly startled, suddenly frightened and takes off. Paul says we shouldn't be startled if the world opposes us shouldn't cause us to bolt, run away, and give up. We shouldn't be frightened by that. And he says there's a couple of reasons. He says, first of all, opposition evidences the work of God. It says God is at work. I had a dear black friend in, in Louisiana that when things would go tough in, in the church and there was strife or things going on, he'd go and he'd say, listen, Keith, just remember, Satan don't kick no dead horse. It's an evidence that God is at work. When the world, not meaning the world in its general sense, but the world in terms of that which stands against God, raises its ugly head. It's an evidence that God is at work. We tend to get frightened and say, oh, what's going to happen? And God says, I'm at work. Opposition evidences God's grace. 
but we don't like that story. We don't like that part of it. We want to believe that prosperity and wealth and good health and all of the rest, that's the evidence of God's grace in this life. Paul says, no, the evidence of God's grace is when he strengthens us in the middle of those things. And that's what he's doing is he's building that sentence and he's going on and he says, we should not be frightened in anything by our opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. God is at work for it has been granted. It has been literally, it is, has been graced to you. But you should suffer to see God's presence. And then finally, Paul says this. Opposition is a common experience for Jesus' followers. I'm a little bit weird as a person, I know, and this week I was reading about English church history and English political history. Most of us don't even know our own history in the United States, let alone English history. But as I was reading it, I read it because I was thinking about a particular time in history that started about 1600 and lasted to about about 1700, about one century, 100 years. It is part of our history as a Protestant church. For you see, beginning in about 1600, there was a guy by the name of James I. You know him well. Some of you may have a Bible that has his name. The what? King James Version. Translated in 1611 during his reign. During that time, there were several different groups of believers within the British Empire in England. Some were Catholic and wanted to go and be a part of the Catholic Church again. Some were part of the Church of England that Henry VIII started as he didn't like that he couldn't divorce his wife and marry another one, so he left the Catholic Church. That's why my grandmother left the Catholic Church, because she didn't like that the priest told her she couldn't do something. And then there were the Protestants, and then also the Separatists. King James came in with his central power and said this, unless you are a part of the Church of England and do things our way, you will be breaking the law. And so as a result of that, there wasn't a lot of beheadings or that kind of stuff. But people's businesses were taken away. The tax laws changed so that those that stood up for the gospel would have to pay more taxes. They lost their businesses. They were imprisoned. After King James I, there was a second king, Charles I, who was actually raised a Presbyterian. But he became even more against those who were outside of the Church of England the church that the government said and the beliefs that the government said you had to have. 
he would bring even greater persecution. There was a group you may have heard of, they were called the Pilgrims, that left England because of that persecution. It would continue. Eventually, there would be King Charles II, who during his reign, it is estimated that about 20,000 British people left the British Isles and came to the colonies because of their persecution. The reason why I was thinking about that this week is I think in this country, I am not a prophet, but I think it's possible that we will live in a time when the government will say, you must think this way. You must accept these practices or you may not be a legitimate Christian. I think a lot of it has to do with the gay marriage debate. And it was frightening two weeks ago. I don't know if you followed the stuff at the Supreme Court. But the question was raised. If there is a church that does not choose to marry a gay couple and gay marriage is seen to be a constitutional right, will they lose their tax exemption? And the answer was, that is a very good possibility. Beloved, what happens to your giving to a church when it's no longer tax deductible? What happens if as a church we will not be legitimate because we will not open up our facilities to a gay marriage reception? What happens if as a church we are no longer tax-exempt and suddenly we have to pay 15 or 20% in taxes? What happens if you lose your business because you would not take a stand? I came across a, a video by N.T. Wright that I thought really touched this and challenges us and asked the question, what will you do if the opposition comes? Listen to what N.T. Wright has to say. I do want to say a word about a word. Um, when anybody, pressure groups, governments, civilizations, suddenly change the meaning of key words, you really should watch out. If you go to a German dictionary and just open it at random, you may well see several German words which have a little square bracket saying NS, meaning National, National Socialist or Nazi, that the Nazis gave those words a certain meaning. In the same way, there was a letter in the Times Lits Up just a few weeks ago saying that when we're talking about assisted suicide or something like that, we shouldn't actually use words like suicide and killing and, and those sort of words yeah. because those imply that you shouldn't do it, whereas now our civilization is saying that maybe sure. there, there are reasons for that. And I find that sort of stuff chilling, the attempt to change a bit of an, ideolog an ideology within a culture by changing the language. Now... The word marriage for thousands of years and cross-culturally has meant man and woman. Um, simply to say that you can have a woman plus woman marriage or a man plus man marriage is radically to change that because of the givenness of maleness and femaleness yes. and 
I would say that without any particular Christian presuppositions at all, just cross-culturally that's so, um, with Christian or Jewish presuppositions, or indeed Muslim, then if you believe in what it says in Genesis 1 about the coming, about God making heaven and earth, and the, the binaries in Genesis 1 are so important, that, that heaven and earth, and then the sea and dry land, and so on and so on, and you end up with male and female. And these, it's all about... God making complementary pairs which are meant to work together. And the last scene in the Bible is um, the new heaven and new earth, and the symbol for that is yeah. the marriage of Christ and his church. So this stuff, it's not just one or two verses here and there which say this or that. It's an entire narrative yes. which works with this complementarity so that a, a male plus female marriage is a signpost or a, a signal about the goodness of the original creation and God's intention for the eventual new heavens and new earth. As N.T. Wright began that, he said these words, when anybody in power changes the definition of a world in order to change behavior, the word he used was, that is I'm not taking a political stance. If you want to know how to respond politically, we can talk later. But I am saying that it is possible that we will face in our country an opposition like we have never known. And Paul has a question. Will you stand and live out the gospel of Christ no matter what? As we end the message, that's the question. It's just this. Am I willing, no matter the situation, to be a good citizens of God's realm first by reflecting the story of Jesus and all that I do? A challenge for you for the next couple weeks. About a month from now, I'm going to preach on Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. The gospel story. Here's my challenge. Over the next three, four weeks, read through those verses, 5 through 11, of Philippians chapter 2. And begin each day by asking this question. How should I take content of this story and allow it to affect my life today? How should I take this story and allow it to affect how I treat my spouse, my co-worker, my child, my parents, my fellow church worker? How should it change what I watch on TV or on the computer, or read? How should it change the actions of my life? How should I take this one thing and allow it to dominate everything that I do? Father, thank you for the story of the gospel. 
we pray, Father, that we would learn what it means to live it out. First of all, by accepting your Son as our Savior. That's where it begins. We challenge each Sunday morning during the prayer that if there's anyone here who doesn't know your Son as their Savior, that they would come and speak to someone about how they might know that. We also know, Father, that as we gather together as a church, that most here will know your Son as their Savior. We ask ask you to teach us how to live out that story in everything that we do. We pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.